So thanks everybody for joining us for lunch. This is going to be one of the most fun parts of the day. I'm so excited to see everybody here. We have Michael Pack, we have Mark Paoletta, and they are going to be here showing clips and discussing clips of the great documentary that Michael helped to produce and really created um, on Justice Thomas called Created Equal, Justice Thomas in His Own Words. And just a brief bit of background on our two uh, participants here. Michael Pack was the CEO of the U.S. Agency for Global Media uh, in the Trump administration, and he has produced a number of films, a number of documentaries over the years, longtime filmmaker, uh, stories of those of greats of Alexander Hamilton, George Washington, among many others. And so what a treat that he devoted his vast talents to producing this wonderful documentary about Justice Thomas. And to interview him is Mark Paoletta, longtime close friend of the Thomases and quite involved in Justice Thomas's uh, confirmation back as assistant White House counsel during the George H.W. Bush administration. Uh, most recently, he served as general counsel of the Office of Management and Budget and was counsel to Vice President Mike Pence during the last administration and is now a partner at Char Jaffe. Uh, and so these are just longtime friends, talents um, here in D.C., and thrilled to be able to have you with us this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. Um, well, thank you for inviting us, to John and Jen, and it's great to be here. I should say that Mark Paylett, in addition to all those other accomplishments Jen listed, was instrumental in this film. He was a, effectively an executive producer, along with my wife, Gina, who I think will be around later, uh, and the film would not have happened without Mark, and he was a, a guiding force throughout. Um, so I'm happy to have him get some credit for that. So, so thank you. Thanks, Michael. It's, it was truly a labor of love. Uh, uh, no one else could have made such an incredible, moving documentary in Justice Thomas. So thank you for doing that as we start off this uh, discussion. Um, so as, as Jen and Jen and John, thank you for having us today. And, and uh, I think it's a little break from the... Um, the heavy constitutional law discussion. So I hope uh, watching a movie during lunchtime is uh, or part of a movie is, is uh, enjoyable. Um, Jen mentioned you've made all these great documentaries, uh, 15 documentaries, all of them shown on PBS. He's a right of center filmmaker. So that's really unprecedented. She uh, shows the quality of, of Michael's film. Uh, George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, Rodney King, Newt Gingrich, uh, even Admiral Rickover. Uh, the father of the nuclear Navy, Michael's made films on. Why did you, Michael, want to make a film on Justice Thomas when you decided to make that film? Well, I had heard from mutual friends, well known to you, that Justice Thomas was dissatisfied with having his reputation, his story, told by people who didn't agree with him and in some cases hated and despised him, and he wanted to get his story out there. He had written a great memoir, but he, a book is one thing, a film media is something else. and there was an HBO movie coming out that was critical and he wanted to get his story out there. And I did not know much about it, just what I remembered from watching the hearings. But after meeting Justice Thomas, it does not take long to, to see that his is a great story, a classic American story at one level of going from dire poverty in the segregated South to the highest court in the land. I mean, it's a great story. And so as soon as I met him, I wanted to tell it. Um. In the documentary, um, a lot of documentaries we've all watched sort of have critics, supporters, sort of both sides of, of people uh, towards the subject of the film, uh, back and forth uh, to make sort of a fair and balanced uh, film. Uh, in this film, uh, you only have uh, Justice Thomas and Ginny Thomas as the interview subject. You have show lots of clips, as we'll see. But how did you come to that decision to just have them interviewed for your film? Well, I set out to make a traditional documentary of the kind you just uh, alluded to, Mark. But as I did a bunch of preliminary interviews with people important in Justice Thomas's life, but it, it was quickly apparent that he was the best teller of his own story by far. So I had the idea of just letting him tell it. Um, also, I wanted to be on PBS. And this way, it wasn't a question of finding a balance that they would agree with or I would agree with. This would be Clarence Thomas's view of his life and the way he saw his story. So it is based, as you know, on over 24 hours of interviews over six months with Justice Thomas and six or seven with Ginny. So it's really an unprecedented amount of access from a Supreme Court justice ever. You know, so I am honored that he trusted me to do that. Mark was helpful in getting him to honor me. And, and I would say... 
when we when Michael first started doing this and the justice agreed to be interviewed, I don't think he ever thought in his wildest dreams it would be 25 hours. I think something along four or five hours uh, was was going to be the 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 length of time of the interviews. It turned out to be 25 hours over. I think six sessions. Right. Yeah. Um, Well, uh, (laughs) but I assure you all here that I did not deceive Justice Thomas or lie to him. You know, a big mistake for many reasons. But I told him it would be long. But I think you're right. His idea of long was different. But I'm really glad he did. He had a lot to say. Um, I should say that and you'll see some of it in the clips of the film. I hope everybody who hasn't watches the entire film, uh, which you can find out how to watch on on either the justicetimesmovie.com website or manifoldproductions.com. And, but, you know, the, the interview, you know, there's a lot more in the 25 hours of interview than we were able to get in the film. So actually Mark and I are coming up with a book based on the outtakes as well as the intakes, really. Maybe for next Father's Day, for those that can't get enough of it after this film. So, which I hope is everybody at least in this room. And, and Michael, just in terms of, um, again, there were six different sessions. Justice Thomas had to wear the same <laughs> outfit uh, for each of those sessions, uh, or at least a, a white shirt and a, and a blue suit uh, and blue suit and red tie. Yeah. Um, but how did it? You, you'll see us in a second. We'll turn to it. But how, how did it? How was it set up? You weren't sitting across the table, right? It was very. Um, right. Uh, you know, just uh, in terms of the filmmaking, how did you have it set up where Justice Thomas was across from you? Well, we had, we interviewed him, as you know, in a studio in Northern Virginia, and we had a very elaborate setup, and the goal was to try to get him looking directly in camera. So we needed a special device so that his eye line stayed in the camera, and we had a very elaborate set, and we shot him in 12K, very high definition, so that those material will be preserved at a high quality forever, which I think is important. so, uh, and yes, the, the suit, I, I have to say, I offered to buy a suit for Justice Thomas so he would not have to remember which one, but it's just like Justice Thomas who insists on not wasting that kind of money <laughs> on a suit. So he said he'd be able to remember what he wore. And generally, when people tell you that, they are not telling you the truth. They forget it's the wrong shirt, it's the wrong color blue, it's a different tie. But Justice Thomas <laughs> said he, it's very Justice Thomas thing. He says he'll do something, then he does it. Indeed. And that's it. From little Indeed. things like that to these big things, you'll see some of in the film. So the first clip is what Justice Thomas calls the most significant journey in his life, right? So do you want to set this clip up, Michael? Right. So this is, I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes into the movie. You know, as most people know, he was born in, in Pinpoint, uh, uh, outside of Savannah. And it was a Gullah-speaking area, and he was born into dire poverty, and his father left before he could remember, and his mother raised the kids. And then she moved to, from Pinpoint to Savannah, and as Justice Thomas says, he went from rural poverty to urban squalor. And this is where this clip finds him. He's living in Savannah. He's, you know, he's, he's doesn't have enough to eat. He's cold in the winter. He's, uh, the mother brings him to school. He just leaves school and wanders the streets. And she's just finding it impossible to take care of them. And she's working as a maid with that money and that, that, that lifestyle. So that's the first clip. Let me say that we're going to show five clips. The pattern will be, hopefully, the lights will dim. The clip, we'll play the clip and then lights will come back up and then we'll talk a little bit. So you'll be able to see your food, a concern of the Heritage Foundation staff. You know. So just wait and the, and the lights will return. So all right, let's see if that all works. Now I'm going to play the first clip. Heritage staff. My mother had difficulty with two little boys and working as a maid. So she asked my my grandparents for help. And my grandmother suggested that she let her raise these two boys. And one day, one Saturday morning, we we woke up and my mother said, put all your things in the grocery bag and remember the paper grocery bags in those days. And my brother took one and neither one was full, (laughs) but we, all of our items, just imagine everything you have in less than a paper bag. So we took our grocery bag each and walked the couple of blocks from Henry Lane to East 32nd street.
that was the longest and most significant journey I ever made because it changed my entire life. My grandfather was this myth. He was uh, very stern. So he sat us there at the kitchen table, and he said, boys, the damn vacation is over. And he said from then on, it was going to be rules and regulations and manners and behavior. Oh, my goodness, and he meant it. And he just explained what the rules were. My grandmother was always right, um, that he was uh, in charge. He made it very clear that it was by grace that we were there, his grace. And the door uh, in 1955 when we went to live with him was swinging open, inward. And if we didn't behave ourselves, there'd be a day when it would swing outward and we'd be asked to leave. They lived in this new house, and it was beautiful. For us, it could have been a palace. We'd never been in a house with a bathtub. Beautiful white porcelain toilet. My brother and I, one of our activities was to flush that toilet every time we had a chance. I mean, we would walk by and flush the toilet. <laughs> and my grandfather said he would... He would chastise us and said, you're running up my, as he would say, you're running up my damn water bill. Beautiful, as we used to say back then, modern kitchen with refrigerator, etc., and lots of food. <laughs> and my grandmother would just lavish you with those things. My grandmother was as sweet as she could be. She would always be saintly. By the time we went to live with my grandfather, he was delivering fuel oil. The rule was, we got out of school at 2.30. You had to be home, dressed, and ready to be on the oil truck by 3. You could not initiate a conversation. So you you were constantly getting this one-way input. He thought that we were destined to have to work for everything because of what happened in the Garden of Eden and because of our fallen nature. We would have to earn everything by the sweat of our brow. That was biblical. And we would have to work from sun to sun, biblical. The philosophy of life that he had came from biblical sources. So it's a life-changing journey uh, going to live with his grandfather and his, his grandmother. Um, name of his book, Justice Thomas's book, is actually My Grandfather's Son. Uh, so uh, he taught him for personal accountability, uh, right from wrong. Uh, the famous saying, right, is old man, his grandfather is saying, old man can't, is dead, I helped bury him. And there's a bust in Justice Thomas's chambers uh, that his the wife Ginny had made for him, which is his grandfather, Myers Anderson, with that uh, quote on the base of the bust. Um, t- tell us, Michael, about kind of your thoughts on uh, um, grandfather's uh, impact on Justice Thomas in his life. I, I think that's right. His, his influence was enormous. I mean, he always cites his grandfather and the nuns as the definitive influence. But I think we make this point at the very end of the movie, but it's very important. And in addition to Justice Thomas's intellectual heroes, like Tom Sowell, his grandfather, who is who is actually functionally illiterate, he had, I think, six months of schooling and he could really not read. But for him, he was, Justice Thomas often says, he's the greatest man he ever knew. So an average person in some ways is the force of his life. And that I think has a deep impact on the way, the way he sees the world. And, and, and Justice Thomas also feels the way his grandfather raised him and the, and the nuns, he was lucky. 
He does not feel, even though he, he's growing up in the seg, in segregated Savannah and the Ku Klux Klan is still marching once a year through the city and there are things, places you can't go, he feels he got a great upbringing from them. He feels blessed rather than a victim. Absolutely. And that's his grandfather and the nuns. And I'm glad you mentioned the nuns. Um, whenever Justice Thomas thanks those who helped him through his life, it begins with his grandparents, his grandfather in particular, and the nuns. Uh, and the nuns are the Irish Catholic nuns who taught uh, down in St. Benedict's, down in Savannah, Georgia, during the segregated South. And St. Benedict's was a black um, segregated school. Um, and they had just an incredible impact on, 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 on Justice Thomas and, and all the kids who, who attended those schools. Uh, never had them feel like they were victims and got them ready for life. Um, so um, any, any more on the, on the nuns, Michael? Or? No, I, I think that's good. You know, they're, they're, they're definitely the bedrock of his, his view of the world. Um, so should we? Yeah, we'll go to the next clip. Okay. Yeah. Keep it going. Uh, next clip is a different kind of turning point. Uh, and I'll let Michael set it up in the dark. Go ahead. Um, well, um, so, um, this is a, a this is at Holy Cross. Oh, yeah, Holy Cross. Is, so he's, so, so after, um, you know, after the last clip, a lot happened to Justice Thomas's life before this next clip. He trained to be he, he he trained to be a priest. He was in seminary. He experienced racism, and then he turned on it all. It was the late '60s, and he turned on his grandfather. Even though we said how important it was, it wasn't at this stage. He felt his grandfather was a sucker. That that he was wrong about everything. He became a black radical. He was. You know, he he's he said Malcolm X, Stokely Carmichael, the more Angela Davis, the more radical, the better. And his grandfather kicked him out of the house and he had to go to Holy Cross, the only college that would have him. And so this is where we find him, a, a black radical at Holy Cross. Um, the, yeah, and, and, and just in terms of the, 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 the. It was one of the nuns, Sister Carmine, who actually had him fill out the application for Holy Cross. Uh, so the, the nuns entering his life again. You can but, make sure they get the credit, yeah, right, Mark? Yeah. Okay. All right, let's roll the clip. <laughs> But I went right back to my radical friends. In the spring of 1970, I was one of several black student union members who went to Boston to take part in an anti-war rally. The organizers of the rally urged us to march to Harvard Square to protest the treatment of America's domestic political prisoners. Off we went, chanting, Ho, Ho, Ho Chi Minh and demanding freedom for Angela Davis, Erica Huggins, and anyone else we could think of. On the way to Cambridge, we stopped at this liquor store, this poor guy. He, he saw us, and he gave us the liquor. <laughs> I think he gave us some potato chips or something, too. <clears throat> but he said, just go. And then on the way, we consumed this liquid courage, you know. Then we proceeded to be back and forth in Cambridge all night. I mean, it was tear gas and sirens. It was bad. I saw what I had become. I didn't even care about it. I didn't care about getting hurt or anything else or what, what was happening to other people. I got back to campus at four in the morning, horrified by what I'd just done. I had let myself be swept up by an angry mob for no good reason other than that I too was angry. I stopped in front of the chapel and prayed for the first time in nearly two years. I didn't ask God, I said, if you take anger out of my heart, I'll never hate again. And that was the beginning of the slow return to where I started. Great clip, Michael. Um, um, a lot of people who don't know the Clarence Thomas story, you know, don't realize he, 
you know, wasn't always conservative, that he embraced this black nationalism and radicalism um, and l- looked at the world that racism, racism explained everything, right? And was to blame for everything, like we're seeing a lot today, right? And he goes down that path and recognizes that it's this self-destructive and self-defeating uh, path and rejects it, uh, which is just this beautiful story. And returning to the church, or at least his faith, uh, if not the church formally at that point. Um, so why don't you comment on that, Michael? Well, as, as he says here, it's a slow process and it took many years. Yeah. But I, I think it's, I thought particularly for my PBS audience when it was broadcast, they had probably never seen the story of someone who has gone from the left and become conservative. And they're, in many of their minds, no doubt, conservatives are just you know, born at a country clubs or something like that. So it's an, and, it, and it's rare to tell a story of someone's complicated intellectual journey, which Justice Thomas had, but it's a very powerful story. And I think you're right. It speaks to today because the very same radical ideas that he rejected and was caught up, first was caught up in and then rejected are now back and back mm-hmm. in spades. And w- one story I love from that period, anyone who knows Justice Thomas is the words fiercely independent uh, are are the perfect description of him. So even when he's in the Black Student Union and in this phase, um, much like we're seeing today, there was a, a a floor at Holy Cross that the Black Student Union wanted set up for just Black students. And uh, Justice Thomas didn't entirely agree with it. He had come from the segregated South and left segregation, and now he's coming up to Holy Cross and wondering why are we segregating again? But they were his friends. He wanted to go along with them. Uh, and so he agreed to move into the the, the the floor where the black students were going to be living. But he, he had one condition. He had um, the year before he had uh, a white roommate, John Sirocco, who had gotten along very well with. Uh, and so he insisted that he would move into the black floor uh, uh, so long as he could bring his white roommate. And uh, I just think that's a perfect Justice Thomas story, uh, doing it his way uh, and, um, and, uh, and, 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 and having the courage to do it his way. It is. And I think the story, the, the, the Harvard riot story is a great story. I mean, many people get caught up in riots. It's just as Thomas is, it speaks to him and the, the, the deep, um, you know, and, you know, deep within him that he did have his grandfather's values, that he ended up seeing that he was caught up in something that he no longer really believed in and that it was really leading the wrong way. And, and, and that kind of moment, that kind of epiphany, he's had several in the movie and and that, I think, speaks to his stature, his intellectual stature, too. Let's just back up, too. I, I've seen this movie probably 30 times. Um, but every time, both the last clip, this clip, the music score, and going <laughs> through this process of watching you put the movie together and, and being part of that and seeing it. Tell us about that, because the, the music is just incredible, right? It's, it's, but, it's so moving. So how does that happen? Because it, 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 it is a process, and it really it could make or break a movie. And, and it was so beautiful in this in this film. Well, one of the great things about being a producer director is you take get to take credit for everybody else's hard work. So, the composer Charlie Barnett he did do a great job, and if you watch the whole film, he was careful to carry themes through themes that relate to Clarence Thomas. There's a Moon River theme, and and he plays I think very subtle variations on those themes. And it took a while to get the music right because the music has to assist the audience in, in seeing Justice Thomas's journey. You know, it has to follow him too. And it's, I have never spent so long sitting with a composer going over music. I mean, it was really hard to get it right, but he did, he did do a great job. And I think the cameraman, James Callanan, did a beautiful job filming as well. And, um, you know, he has a great eye and he understood what we were going for. And I think he got it. And the, the, the music was scored in False Church, right? Uh, is that where it was? No, but he's in Bethesda. Oh, he's in Bethesda. That was a studio in Falls Church. That's the only, you know, the only we shot him in Falls Church. I got you. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, archival footage uh, in here, uh, photos, some videos. Uh, how difficult was that to obtain? Uh, did you have any resistance? Yeah, I mean, the ar- archival, looking for archival clips is always a big, big process, and we had a lot of people working on it with us, but I mean, I was very surprised in this film how little cooperation we really got from a lot of these archives. Usually when you're working on a PBS film, people are bend over backwards to help you. But there was a lot of resistance, especially uh, in Savannah and in Georgia, from helping us. I mean, there was people would just, you know, I think I, I, I 
and, and perhaps maybe a, a good example is the African-American History Museum, which I think a lot of you know, at first didn't have anything about Clarence Thomas. And here in Washington. In, here in Washington, and then introduced a little bit that was sort of, you know, tied into their, their Thurgood Marshall exhibit. But they didn't, for, for a long time, they didn't return our calls. They didn't help us, even though their mission is to help anybody working on African-American history. So, you know, it was really, it, it was surprising. I mean, I, th there is this sense that there's a lot of opposition to Justice Thomas, and you feel it at every level, even in archival footage research. I mean, we'll see a little bit later, you know, what that how that resistance manifests itself against Clarence Thomas, but it's everywhere, you know, and, and it's as and it's present today like it was 30 years ago. Yeah, it's it's outrageous in, in the African American Museum in particular. Uh, outrageous. It's really, really um, disappointing and outrageous. Um, let's show the third clip. Okay. This is where yes. Uh, Justice Thomas essentially becomes a public persona. That, that's right. Uh, and why don't you set this clip up? That's right. So um, after the last clip, he, you know, Justice Thomas graduated from Holy Cross. He went to Yale Law School, as I think most of you know. Uh, and then he went to work for uh, Jack Danforth and as a, when he was Missouri Attorney General. And he worked for Monsanto for a few years. And then when Jack Danforth became senator, he went to Washington to work for him there. And that's where the clip picks him up. And I think Justice Thomas is still on that journey. He says that he originally, Jack Danforth gave him the only job offer he got, and so he had to take it. And the reason he was hesitant, he didn't want to work for a Republican. So he hadn't quite made that journey, but he's just getting the point of voting for Ronald Reagan when we see him in this clip. So let's, let's roll the clip. For the first time in my adult life, Washington was full of serious talk about the possibility of getting government off the backs of the poor. This is really an historic opportunity. Uh, the economic and social advancement of blacks in this country is still a great unfinished task. Tom Sowell, he invited me to this conference, and it would be named the Fairmont Conference because it was held at the Fairmont Hotel in San Francisco. It was how do we rethink the policies toward um, uh, blacks in this country uh, in a new administration. Many social problems are worsening. Continued disintegration of families. I sat at this table and there was a young black reporter there and I knew nothing about the press. One question he asked me was, why was I so interested in all these social issues? And I explained to him because of the destruction I saw it doing home in Savannah. And as an example of that, I used my sister and his, her kids being uh, objects of these uh, programs. Little did I know, he would write an article about this and would turn it into an op-ed. The article by Juan Williams became a point at which Clarence became a public persona. Then license is given to others to attack you in whatever way they want to. You're not really black because you're not doing what we expect black people to do. You weren't supposed to oppose busing. You weren't supposed to oppose welfare. Perhaps it marked a course for you, Justice Thomas. Oh, I don't know if it marked a course, but there was no going back.
Reagan administration was running into the storm. Everything the president did, he was called a racist. That was from the very beginning. I was under constant attack. Oh, my gosh. We have uh, attempted in the last two years to remedy a wide range of problems within the commission. Congressman Barney Frank says he remains skeptical about progress under the current administration. I'm pleased with that. It's also an opportunity to acknowledge the record. We have a positive record. We think that we should never back down. That point is one that I can't stress enough. Any black misguided enough to accept the job in the Reagan administration was automatically branded an Uncle Tom. After I wrote a letter to the editor of Playboy, taking issue with a 1986 article by Hotting Carter called Reagan and the Revival of Racism, Carter responded as follows. As a Southerner, Mr. Thomas is surely familiar with those chicken-eating preachers who gladly parroted the segregationist line in exchange for a few crumbs from the white man's table. He's one of the few left in captivity. Not a single civil rights leader objected to this nakedly racist language. Wow. Um... A lot in that clip. Um, let's just start with the, the last part because it just infuriates me every time I see it. So, hiding uh, Carter, outrageous, racist statement. There's a, many others that you focus on, and from cartoons to other uh, depictions of, of Justice Thomas in the film. Um, so tell tell us about focusing on that, and then why is it <laughs> that? Um, People like Hotting Carter and others uh, can say these outrageously racist things and get away with it and and have them applauded for it. Um, it, it, it is outrageous, and in, and we have many other examples. There's the cartoon where they depict Clarence Thomas as a shoe shine boy shining Scalia's shoes, a lawn jockey, uh, cartoons that have him in a Ku Klux Klan robe. I mean, he says this at some point in the film that you know you. It, only black conservatives like himself or, or Ben Carson could, could sustain these. They would never say that about any other African-American and surely not any, would never use this kind of language about anybody. They're, they're, somehow it's okay. It's shocking. It's still shocking. And yeah, Hodden Carter, a white Southerner, is saying this about Clarence Thomas, who grew up in the segregated South, a black man who grew up in the segregated South. It's, it is, really is outrageous. It's actually hard to figure out. I mean, um, it's it's I I, I it's it is mind-boggling to this day, but it is very real. And I think it's as as the justices said, you know, from confirmation hearings and and, and before, um, the, the the left has de- determined what you're allowed to think, uh, mm-hmm. and in particular, Black Americans. And if you don't think that certain way, you will be destroyed. You will be caricatured. You will be destroyed. And 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 it's acceptable. <laughs> Uh, to do that uh, uh, from the left's perspective. And that's what's so infuriating about that clip and, and other parts of the movie. Um, Let me make one more point. I mean, what's notable that here is that started immediately as soon as he became a public persona, yes. as he says here, in 1980 or 81 or whatever that, that was, and goes all the way to today. I mean, a lot of people think it started at the hearing, but it started day one. You know, as Juan Williams even says in that column, a lot of people don't understand how a black man can have those opinions. And as you're right, Mark, he's simply not allowed to do that. And the attacks were immediate, immediate and unceasing. And just in terms of we'll get to the confirmation, I think, in the next clip. But again, when we when I looked at materials, when we were looking at Justice Thomas um, as a somebody for President Bush to a point, seeing all of those attacks and how Justice Thomas never backed down. Uh, was, I think, um, you know, something that uh, showed that he'd be a great Supreme Court justice even back then. So no surprise for anyone who was involved with his appointment at the time, uh, uh, but uh, just always upsetting to see. Um, the, the clip of, uh, of uh, uh, Justice Thomas in the Oval Office with Ronald Reagan was just wonderful. Um, and then that the video of the marsh with the drone coverage, that is actually right outside of where Justice, I mean, when I say 
like right where Justice Thomas was born. So that is Pinpoint, Georgia. Uh, and you just get a sense of where he grew up. Like most people, you talk about Pinpoint, Georgia, outside of Savannah. It is that marsh. And right next to that is actually Moon River, which Michael made a reference to in the Johnny Mercer song. Uh, is kind of right next to that that marsh area. But th- that's the place when Justice Thomas writes about the bateaus going out and, and, and oysters and, and all that. That's that's a beautiful shot. And um, just just wanted to point out that that's, that's where he actually grew up. Right. So we, it, it appears throughout the film, the, 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 that drone footage of the of the marshlands and as we follow Justice Thomas's journey. It's sort of hard to follow these things with clips. And as you said, Moon River is also a theme throughout. But yeah, it's a, it's a remarkable part of the world. I mean, it was amazing even spending a few days on those marshes. Um, okay, let's move to the next clip. So the next clip uh, is, I think, for what, for many people, the most dramatic part of the hearings and what a lot of people know Justice Thomas for, uh, and it sort of resonates down down until today in terms it, it, of uh, the impact. It does. So yes, Justice Thomas might have been attacked from the beginning, but nothing like what we're about to see in the next clip. Right. So this is in the middle of the hearings. Justice Thomas has gone through over a week of grilling by the Senate and uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee, and he thinks it's all over. He and Jenny have left town to take a little vacation. And then the Anita Hill charges, you know, um, NPR, a Newsday um, leak, the Hill charges, and the, the, the committee is brought back into session. Anita Hill testifies. You, her charges are covered by C-SPAN and all the networks everywhere. Justice Thomas, who is tired and spent and doesn't know what to do, has to come back and testify again. And he doesn't really know what to do and what to say. And the clip picks him up at that moment, what to do, how to respond to those things. So let's start the next clip. Adjourn till 9 o'clock. Senator Danforth called me at home after the testimony, and they wanted me to testify that night to not let the testimony, her testimony, be the new, fill up the news cycle. This afternoon, Mr. Bush left for Camp David. He'd have to describe the mood here as resigned, I think, and somber, not at all sure that Clarence Thomas is going to survive this. So I reluctantly agreed to come back, I think, at 8 o'clock. He may have thought it was necessary to go back in front of the Senate, but honestly, from his wife's point of view, watching the man who is my loved, beloved husband, I didn't know he had it within him to keep going. So I get to Jack, Senator Danforth's office, and we sit and we uh, begin to uh, discuss what the, you know what's ahead. I was exhausted, and I asked him to get rid of all the people. And he turned off the lights. And I just laid down on the couch and and just closed my eyes. Surrounded by the darkness of early evening, drifting in the liminal space between sleep and waking... I must have been thinking of To Kill a Mockingbird, in which Atticus Finch, a small-town Southern lawyer, defends Tom Robinson, a black man on trial for the rape of a white woman. Gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? We have, Your Honor. I had lived my whole life knowing that Tom's fate might be mine. Strip away the fancy talk and you were left with the same old story. You can't trust black men around women. We find the defendant guilty as charged. This one may be a big city judge with a law degree from Yale, but when you get right down to it, He's just like the rest of them. One of the things that came to mind after I had rested a little bit, I said, Jack, this is a high-tech lynching. And he said, if that's what you think, say it. 
And so I wrote that on the legal pad, and and he just exhorted me to go in the name of the Holy Ghost. There were conservative groups who were marshalling activists from around the country to come in and line the hallways. And we came out of Senator Danforth's office and we were going down the hallway and all these people were clapping and very excited. And he said to me, who are those people? And I said, I think they're angels. Committee will please come to order. Do you have anything you'd like to say? Senator, I would like to start by saying unequivocally, uncategorically, that I deny each and every single allegation against me today that suggested in any way that I had conversations of a sexual nature or about pornographic material with Anita Hill, that I ever attempted to date her, that I ever had any personal sexual interest in her, or that I in any way ever harassed her. This is a circus. It's a national disgrace. And from my standpoint, as a black American, as far as I'm concerned, it is a high-tech lynching for uppity blacks who in any way deign to think for themselves, to do for themselves, to have different ideas. And it is a message that unless you kowtow to an old order, this is what will happen to you. You will be lynched, destroyed, caricatured, by a committee of the U.S. U.S. Senate rather than hung from a tree. I love that guy. The greatest takedown of a congressional committee in history, in my view. I, I've run a lot of hearings. Uh, Jess Donlin over here has, has run a lot of hearings. And the absolute evisceration and rebuke of that committee. And, and it, it's a longer speech where he really goes after the committee individually. Um, um, it was just amazing. And watching it is, is, is just so powerful. Um, and as you saw, who's, who's running those hearings, right, is our president of the United States today. And um, in my view, what Joe Biden did there was a disgrace. As Justice Thomas said, it was a, a circus. Um, and there's a lot of evidence uh, then and as it has been developed that even Joe Biden did not believe Anita Hill was telling the truth. Uh, there's a great documentary on Fox Nation um, that has interviews with uh, Senator Hatch, where Hatch says that um, uh, Biden told him at the time that he didn't believe Anita Hill. Uh, that um, Simpson uh, also says that um, uh, Biden didn't believe her. Um, so uh, to allow this lie to go on uh, and be spread like that, as Justice Thomas said, was just unforgivable. Um, and it took the courage of Justice Thomas to come back and uh, rebuke the committee. And um, the hearings went on. A number of witnesses testified on behalf of Justice Thomas. Not a single co-worker of, of the two of them ever testified in support of Anita Hill. Um, it was just a, a, a tragedy, but, um, but also showing the strength and courage of Justice Thomas. Um, Michael, you want to? A comment on that? Well, it's it's hard to add anything to the, the Justice Thomas's comments, but he does go on. I mean, it's I mean, it's even longer in reality, but we have, you know, another several minutes of the hearings. But no, it's really amazing. And and he w was counseled at the time not to give this kind of a speech. I mean, it 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 didn't seem to make sense. If you want senators to vote for you, maybe you shouldn't attack them, right? I mean, that's Washington D.C. common sense from a you know handler. Justice Thomas, as he says later in the in the film and, and and in the hearings, just didn't care. He wanted to defend himself. He felt that he was speaking for himself, the values of his grandfather, the values of his nuns, and he, he wanted to fight back. 
And it's that fighting back, that moral courage that is inspiring every time you see it. I, I, I think that's really right. Yeah. And as, he, as he went back there for his name, not for the court. For his he name. could care less about going on the Supreme right. Court at that point. Right. I and mean, let me just correct myself. It was Arnold Inspector uh, yeah. who interviewed Biden, uh, and Biden told him uh, that he didn't believe uh, 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 yeah. Anita Hill's story. Uh, and that's in a book of uh, Spectre's memoirs. Um, so, uh, but, but and as you know, Mark, the, this speech and his testimony in general turned the tide. I mean, the, by the time it was over, the country was two thirds for him and one third for Anita Hill, including women, including African Americans. You know, the, the, he shifted public opinion. C-SPAN covered it, gavel to gavel, and it was extensively on other networks. People saw it; they could hear from Justice Thomas directly, and he was able to turn it around. I, I will say that, as is typical, the left did not stop attacking Justice Thomas after he was confirmed. And who knows what people think today? Yeah. Anita Hill has a, a podcast and another book, and you know she's still celebrated. And the African American History Museum has a huge thing celebrating Anita Hill speaking truth to power. So I don't. It's been 30 years. The left has continued to attack him. I'm not sure how people feel if you were to conduct a poll today. But it, but it is really up to us to sort of get the other side out, and which is why actually events like this are important, among other yeah. things. A couple on, you know, Justice, um, I mean, uh, Boyden Gray uh, was an absolute rock, who's the counsel to the president. President Bush was an absolute rock and never wavered in his support of, of, of uh, Justice Thomas. As were you, a rock, Mark. It's only fair it to say. It was an honor to work on that, and um, um, truly an honor. Um, and, and there was no gender gap. Too, in terms of the, who, the, the the polls, it was 58 to 24, and um, and only 26 percent of women believed in Anita Hill. So, uh, in any event, when people watch those hearings, uh, I think they knew what the the truth was. And um, uh, but anyways, a powerful clip from your film, uh, and um, we'll move to the the next one. Sure. Um, well, actually, one other thing, J Justice Thomas mentions To Kill a Mockingbird, mm. right? And uh, one of his favorite novels, uh, and there's a great clip from there. Mm. And how he identifies with Tom Robinson, right? Justice Thomas talked about a lot of books uh, in these 25 hours, yeah. like a lot. And but there were probably five or six that were those that he kept returning to, and their characters and their messages. And so, why don't you talk about those, Michael? Well, as we said earlier, I think Tom Sowell and his books are first in its influence on Justice Thomas. But but he's also influenced a lot by works of fiction. I mean, like To Kill a Mockingbird, like um, Anne Rand, The Fountainhead, like he refers to Kafka's The Trial as a way of understanding what was happening to him during the hearings. Native Son. Native Son. Richard Wright. And, and Invisible Man by Ralph Allison. And I, Mark and I have talked about this. Justice Thomas, the way he reads these books, he takes something from them that he needs for his own life and spiritual development, you know. Uh, you know, I studied literature in college. I might be more of a literary critic, but for Justice Thomas, it's taking what he needs from these books and, and a deep lesson. And he returns to them again and again. So it, we have clips from some of them, but, uh, you know, it, it's he's he's powerfully influenced by them. And I think he still has his clerks watch The Fountainhead um, every year. Um, and um, OK, uh, long time ago. He takes yeah, yeah. Him, or maybe carry uh, phone. He, he said he did it when okay. we interviewed him, and, uh, yeah. and 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 he takes him up to Gettysburg every year uh, to the battlefield. Yeah, I'm not convinced the Fountainhead is a great movie, but he takes this <laughs> great. He does take from it this sort of stand up for yourself, which is I a think, great message to take from the Fountainhead. Right. I think Michael was at this discussion yes, during the have, interview. Yes. Yes. But you know, the the point of the film is not to express my views about the Fountainhead or anything else, <laughs> but Justice Thomas's views. So I try to be true to what he said. So it's nice to have a chance to express my own views once in a while, like in events like this. All right, last clip. Uh, this is, gets into Justice Thomas's yeah. jurisprudence. Not yet, not yet. <laughs> so I just want to say that the, the very last session I had with Justice Thomas, we discussed his jurisprudence, and. Perhaps for this audience, there's not maybe enough of it in the film. He has a very complicated personal story, and we mainly tied it into his life story. So this clip begins with his consideration of the, the Gruder case, you know, affirmative action case that ties into other things that he said. And then we, we go from there to his more general philosophy. Um, so, okay, now you can roll the clip. Thank you.
what is expected to be a landmark case before the Supreme Court to be argued this April. The plaintiffs in this case are three white applicants to the University of Michigan who were rejected, they say, because of their race. Racial discrimination is not a permissible solution. That can only weaken the principle of equality embodied in the Declaration of Independence and the Equal Protection Clause. Show me in the Constitution where you get a right to separate citizens based on race. I think what we've become comfortable with is thinking that there is some good discrimination and some bad discrimination. Well, who gets to determine that? And if you look in the briefs and the race cases, uh, the segregationists, the people who thought you should have a separate system, they, they said that they thought it was good for both races. So they thought it was good discrimination. When interpreting constitutional text, the goal is to discern the most likely public understanding of a particular provision at the time it was adopted. You have to really be careful not to supplant uh, what is there, what was uh, rightfully done on the, with your own views simply because you don't think it's a great rule. A bad policy can be constitutional. A good policy can be unconstitutional. So that's why we start with the text. Justice Scalia called Clarence a bloodthirsty originalist. He took that as a compliment. The framers understood natural law and natural rights a certain way. And it is an underpinning of our Declaration, which then becomes a foundation for the Constitution. They start with the rights of the individual. And where do those rights come from? They come from God. They're transcendent. And you give up some of those rights in order to be governed. They're inalienable rights. Okay? And now you give up only so many as necessary to be governed by your consent. And hence, limited government, enumerated powers, separation of powers, federalism, and the judicial review, it, it all makes sense. Uh, great clip, Michael, to introduce uh, general viewers to Justice Thomas's judicial um, philosophy um, and approach of originalism, um, and particularly on the race cases. Um, and um, you want to talk a little bit more about that? Well, um, yeah, I mean, I call the film Created Equal because he comes back to the Declaration and, of course, the Constitution again and again, and his idea of equality. And since we made the film, the question of what equality means has become yet even more a vexed national question, you know, equity. Um, all men are created equitable or something, another view of that. So, it, it, yes, it, it's, it, you know, he understands that and he, he hews to that. I think he may, I mean, perhaps for this audience, a lot of these, th these things that Justice Thomas says might strike them as obvious. But I think, remember, we're trying to reach a broader audience. I think people have even heard an idea like, a bad law could be constitutional and a good law could be unconstitutional, sort of a basic premise of constitutional law, period. But people are used to the idea that the point of the Supreme Court is to affect the right uh, policy. And, and that is what Justice Thomas and Justice Scalia and others have stood against. And now the Supreme Court is really a bastion of that against radical change. I got about five minutes left. Uh, first thing, we've seen uh, Ginny Thomas a couple times in the clips. Uh, an absolutely wonderful person, happy warrior, uh, and I couldn't imagine Justice Thomas without her. Uh, and you interviewed her for five or six hours, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, just uh, 
I think her, her interview is great too. Um, really insightful, and particularly during the confirmation yeah, hearings. Um, as, but, as you know, Mark. So Justice Thomas had no editorial control over the film. And he made, act, even though I, I wanted him to see it right before it was completed in case there were errors, but he didn't want to watch it, didn't watch it till it was broadcast on PBS. Um, and in the course of the entire <laughs> despite process, Michael's efforts. despite my efforts, it's repeated. Um, but the one suggestion he made was to interview Ginny. I was just going to interview Justice Thomas. And he said, you know, he, there were things he had trouble talking about relating to the confirmation and other things. And he thought I needed to talk to Ginny. If and you so, really wanted to understand me, you should talk to so, Ginny. You know, one suggestion, I kind of had to do it, right? You know, one thing he tells me to do. So I was skeptical and I did not have to use it. I just had to interview her. But in fact, her, he was right, as uh, you know, Mark is occasionally the case with Justice Thomas. So um, it, her interview was very powerful, and and she really did underlie a lot of things. Really and, insightful, and just yeah, and and you know they were they were as one during that process, as he often says. Yeah, not to go back, but you know she was I think thirty three years old during those hearings. Unbelievable. Uh, been married for I think four years, five years. Um, just I I think back to that, and when you watch those clips of how awful that was at that age, uh, any age, but particularly at that age. Um, so just wanted to give a shout out to Jenny. She's, she's yeah. a great friend and a wonderful yeah. person. A um, couple things um, uh, before we, we run out of time here. Um, um, you should really watch this movie. For those who haven't, go to justicethomasmovie.com. That's where you can find the platforms that you where You can buy the DVD. Um, and um, it's, it's just a beautiful, beautiful film. Um, Justice Thomas's memoirs, which came out in 2007, which are here, was a uh, number one best-selling um, uh, book on the New York Times bestseller list. Um, it's just been published as an audio book and a digital ebook, so Audible and Kindle. And mm -hmm. it's it's uh, Justice Thomas read his his memoirs, so it's available in his own voice. And that just happened last week. So I urge all of you uh, here in the room and watching uh, uh, online to. Uh, purchase purchase that book too. Um, there's a great documentary on Fox Nation. In fact, your your film is also on Fox Nation, uh, which yes, is a sub is. subscription based uh, service. Um, but um, there's another documentary that focuses on the hearing. And to the extent anyone wants to know more about those hearings and the facts there, uh, I set up two websites: um, uh, AnitaHillCase.com, which goes through everything on those hearings, uh, and then one on Justice Thomas, which is JusticeThomas.com. Uh, I think there's a new Facebook. Fan page uh, that has been set up. I think it's called Justice Thomas Fan Account. Uh, that's on Twitter, on Facebook. I say those things because Justice Thomas has just been this incredible American, a great hero, our greatest justice, and and it's so wonderful that Heritage and the Gray Center are doing this event today. And and to get his story out there more, I just think is it's just is very very important. And so uh, th those, you know, the book. Michael's movie, those sorts of things are are great great ways to learn about the justice. In terms of getting his story out, I mean, where we are with the film, I mean, as you all know, it was first in movie theaters, then on PBS, and now streaming. But beyond that, because I think it is important to get his story out, we are. My wife, who will be around here later, is leading this effort. But we are trying to get it adop adopted in schools. We're we're doing um, creating clips, not quite these clips, short clips that relate to curriculum with teachers' guides. So the schools can adopt them, hopefully during Black History Month, as an alternative to 1619 curriculum and Black Lives Matter curriculum and all this other curriculum that is out there. I often say that Justice Thomas's story is like a critical race theory antidote. He has the other story. I mean, the high schools across the country and middle schools are being besieged by this material. At least we should get one alternate view, a person who doesn't define himself as a victim, that doesn't see... America as systemically racist, whose story is one of overcoming obstacles and makes the case that young people can do that today. So I think it's important to get it out, you know, although I do encourage everybody to buy the stream it and buy the DVD, I think it's very important that young people see this story um, around the country. So that's our next big effort with this film. And anyone who has any advice on that or can be helpful, we are anxious to get help. And I think it's really important that there's really a battle over these issues, as you're all aware. And Justice Thomas's story is, you know, a very important um, antidote to the to the other stories of America that are circulating. Join me in thank you. 
Uh, and, and... Bobby. Sure. 